what we have going on here. It's our heritage. It's who we are. After a woman scaled the flagpole on the state house grounds to remove the Confederate battle flag there, it was quickly replaced. Hours later, supporters of the flag showed up from across the state in a rally that had been planned days prior. It's just such a personal symbol like here in the South and it means so much to so many people. Like it's just about pride and where you come from and being proud to show who you are. Dozens gathered in support of the Confederate flag, arguing that it should continue to fly at the state house. We're just doing this in the defiance of uh, political correctness and, and basically appeasement on behalf of our state legislator to appease a, a small percentage of the people of the state. We don't believe that they have the consent to do this, to, take, to even vote to take it down. As flag protesters arrived, heated debates began. Sean McGinnis wants the flag to be a thing of the past as his young son gets older. I don't want him to grow up with that. I want him to grow up wondering, Dad, did they really act like that when you were alive? I say, yeah, and you're not going to have to deal with that. Still, supporters of the flag argue it is not a symbol of hate. This is the battle flag. It's no different from honoring veterans of the Iraqi War, Korean War, Vietnam War. This is honoring the veterans. Tom Clements says he has family members who fought for the Confederacy, but he still doesn't think the flag has a place on the State House lawn. I find it embarrassing the, the way these people out here just plays into the stereotype of, you know, the southerner who flaunts uh, his racism and supports divisiveness. It's embarrassing. I have, I have southern and confederate heritage and I think the flag should come down, but I don't think we should embarrass ourselves in this discussion. And though many on each side seem to understand each other's grievances. I understand where the pain comes from, but you have to be aware that that's not the whole story. Well, I get, I get it. It's heritage. I have heritage to the Civil War, like I said, with General, with Major Narsay. But here's the thing: it's time to let it go. It's a symbol that has been co-opted for hate. It was created in hate. The actual Secession Articles, the Cornerstone speech, said, "We believe the Negro is not equal to the white man. We believe that God brought the Negro to us to own." And I can't stand for that. The debate about whether or not the flag should fly here continues on. Welcome everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ape Academy podcast, Act, Protect, Engage. I'm your host, Mr. Chase. We are continuing our epic, great, educational, historic series on the Confederate flag, okay? The Confederate flag has been the source of a lot of controversy pretty much since 1860, 1861. All right, so we're going to continue on with our great series. Today we're going to talk about the lost cause fallacy. What is the lost cause fallacy? All right, and for anyone who doesn't know, it's a way that Southerners after the war reinvented their image, how the flag, how the meaning behind the flag and what the flag stood for changed over time. God bless you guys. I hope you enjoy this episode. Ape. We are a band of brothers and native to the soil. Fighting for the property we gain by honest toil. And when our right 
Whites were threatened, the cry rose near and far. Hurrah for the bonnie blue flag that bears a single star. Hurrah, hurrah, for southern rights, hurrah. Hurrah for the bonnie blue flag that bears a single star. First gallant South Carolina nobly made the stand. Then came Alabama and took her by the hand. Hello, hello everybody. What's going on? Chase back again with another episode of the Act Protect the Gate podcast. This song is called The Bonnie Blue Flag by Tennessee Ernie Ford. Songs of the Civil War. So we talked about the Bonnie Blue Flag last episode. The Bonnie Blue Flag was one of the original flags of the Confederacy. It was more of a uh, nostalgic flag, right? South Carolina was the first state that seceded from the Union, so South Carolina was the figurehead of the Confederacy. All right, here we go. (laughs) That is a classic song. Once again, it's called the Bonnie Blue Flag. The Bonnie Blue flag was one of the original designs, one of the original standards that was considered for the national flag of the Confederacy. It was not chosen. It really never picked up a whole lot of steam. But in South Carolina, it's legendary and uh, lives on today. Okay, so what are we talking about today? We're continuing our talk from a few days ago. And um, if you haven't, tuned into it please make sure you tune into that one before you tackle this one all right because what we're going to do is we're going to piggyback off of the first episode now in the first episode we talked about the origins of the confederate flag we talked about the origins of the confederacy itself all right so we talked about how the confederacy struggled to kind of distance themselves from the union And this was kind of personified in the struggle and the debate over a new national flag for the Confederacy. A lot of people, they still clung to their old Union roots. You know, a lot of people didn't want to throw away the Stars and Stripes completely. So the first Confederate battle flag was known as the Stars and Bars. And that closely resembled the Stars and Stripes of the Union. So it had three red and white bars and in the top left corner kind of like the American flag the stars and stripes there was a blue field with a circle of white stars and each star represented a slave holding state in the confederacy okay and that was the original flag it ends up that for the most part it was unpopular and a lot of people were like you know what it was a good idea but it's not working out it's confusing on the battlefield because commanders couldn't really distinguish between their units and federal units. And it was just like, we want to distance ourselves from the country that we just broke apart from. So we don't want to, you know, keep too many of those old ties to the American Union. So let's break off. Let's create something totally different. All right. In enters a man named Mr. William Miles. He was chosen to be the chairman of the Confederate Flag and Seal Committee. He put out this design, and it was a red flag with a blue St. Andrew's cross. 
So that's basically a diagonal cross. So just imagine a cross kind of turned around. It looks like a big X, but it's not an X. It's a cross. And in the middle of the cross were white stars representing the states of the Confederacy. In the beginning, his comrades, his peers in the committee kind of laughed them away. Like, ah, that looks ridiculous. It looks like you're wearing suspenders. It looks stupid. But he didn't give up. He pitched his idea to General Beauregard of the Army of the Potomac, later renamed the Army of Northern Virginia. And the general, he liked it because it was bold. It was big. It was a lot different than the stars and bars. It was a unique image. So this is where we're starting right now. We're, we're going to talk about the formal adoption, okay? On the afternoon, oh, before we start, <laughs> I got to cite my sources. We have the Confederate flag, America's most embattled emblem by Mr. John M. Kosick, HistoryNet.com, History.com, and the University of Virginia, my favorite school in the world. Okay, had to cite the sources. Also, don't forget, please turn on your post notifications. Therefore, right, you'll know when we have a new episode coming out. It'll give you a little notification. Please follow us on IG at Ape Academy and also at Ape Academy Podcast. So we have two pages on Twitter at A underscore defensive on Facebook, Ape Defensive Solutions on TikTok. <laughs> we're going to try out TikTok, Ape Academy Podcast. OK, Ape Academy Pod, actually, for short. All right, here we go. Now we can start talking about the formal adoption. Okay, the formal adoption of the St. Andrew's flag. On the afternoon of November 2nd, 1861, the Army of the Potomac was assembled on the heights overlooking Centerville, Virginia, and they were assembled there to formally receive their new battle flag. The ceremony was, by one account of a young soldier in the 4th South Carolina Infantry, quote, the grandest time we have ever had. The noise of the men was deafening. I felt at the time that I could whip a whole brigade of enemy just by myself. But after due reflection, I concluded I could not. <laughs> Sam Payne of the 19th Virginia Infantry, he reflected to his cousin in a letter, quote, it is called a battle flag and to be used only in an engagement. I think it much the prettiest one we have. It is beautiful red silk with a deep blue cross on it and a star representing each state in the cross. All right. So those are pretty, pretty high, high marks, high reviews for the new St. Andrew's flag. So remember, the St. Andrew's flag is the what we now know as the Confederate flag, right? The red field, the blue St. Andrew's cross diagonal with the white stars in the cross. The St. Andrew's cross battle flag was also dubbed the Beauregard flag, which doesn't acknowledge its original designer, Mr. William Miles. But to be fair, it does give credit to the person who had the power to spread his design throughout the Confederate army. So. Although Mr. Miles, it was his freaking design in the beginning, 
it was the general, General Beauregard, that actually took it and ran with it and made sure that he presented it to his superiors, superiors and it was later adopted as the Confederate battle standard of the Army of Northern Virginia. All right. When General Beauregard transferred to the Army of the West to become the second in command under General Albert Sidney Johnston, he noticed that commanders in the West had adopted their own unique battle flag designs. So remember, this St. Andrew's flag, it was, it was really just isolated to the Army of Northern Virginia. It had not spread yet. Okay, the Army of the West, which was the Army of Tennessee, Arkansas, there are a bunch of different units, okay? They had their own unique flags that was separate from the Army of Northern Virginia's flags, all right? General Leonidas Polk, who was himself an Episcopalian bishop, he adopted a flag featuring a red St. George's cross on a blue field. Okay, so you got the blue field with the St. George's cross in the middle. General William J. Hardy adopted a blue flag with a white disc. I personally, if there was a flag of the Confederacy that I quote-unquote liked, that I thought was cool, it would be the Hardy design. The blue flag with a white disc, and then within the disc was the unit emblem, whether it be the, you know, the 2nd Arkansas or the 1st Tennessee Regiment, whatever it may be. The Hardy pattern did not have any red in it at all, making it easy to distinguish from other battle standards. Major General Earl Von Dorn, he introduced his own battle standard, which was an exotic red flag with 13 white stars, a white crescent moon, and a gold border in late 1861. It actually sounds pretty cool, pretty cool looking. That's an exotic design, like, but it still was kind of similar to the St. Andrew's design, but it had his own little twist on it with the, with the white crescent moon and the gold border. Beauregard's attempt to force uni uniformity across the Confederate Army of the West was doomed to fail. So the general, he came from the Army of Northern Virginia to the Army of the West to become the second in command. And as he transferred, he wanted to kind of force his philosophy about the battle flag to the Army of the West, right? So he was like, look, it's just easier. It's just easier for everybody. It makes everything a little bit smoother. If everyone kind of has the same battle flag and is fighting under the same standard, it's much easier to recognize everyone and not get confused in the heat of battle. Everything is kind of streamlined. The quartermasters don't have to worry about making a bunch of different flags, etc., etc., etc. There are a bunch of reasons why he wanted uniformity, but remember, these these folks are rebels for a reason. <laughs> right? They don't they don't take too kindly to someone telling them what to do. So even though the general wanted his units in the Army of the West to adopt the St. Andrew's Cross, there were still a bunch of holdouts especially under General Patrick Claiborne, okay? His units, they kept the hardy design pretty much throughout the entire war. All right. Even the St. Andrew's flag that was forced on the Army of the West by Beauregard differed a little bit from the original that was used by the Army of Northern Virginia. There are still many units in the Army of Tennessee 
which was part of the larger army of the West, who stubbornly continued to use their own flags, the multiple variations of the original stars and bars. So there were still units who had the stars and bars. There were still units who used the Hardy flag. There were units who used the Von Dorn flag. So it was just, there were all different flags floating around. But Beauregard was, he was convinced that everyone needed to have the same flag. In 1880, in 1863, more pressure was applied within the Army of Tennessee by General Joseph Johnson and General John Bell Hood to replace individual regimental flags with the Army of Northern Virginia's flag. The two generals ordered their troops to bear the new St. Andrew's flag. Even after adopting the St. Andrew flag, the Army of Tennessee's flag was rectangular without a border, similar in appearance to the most popular 20th century reproduction flags. So, even after the, the two generals, General John Bell Hood and General Joseph Johnson, under the direction, okay, of General Beauregard, even though they ordered their units to change it, it was still slightly different, okay? Still slightly different. So there's a little bit of, of stubbornness involved in the whole process of switching flags. Nevertheless, units in the Western theater resisted the standardization of the St. Andrew's flag. The troops of Hardy's division were loath to surrender the flags under which they had fought and bled under. The regiments of Hardy's original division, which was commanded by General Patrick R. Claiborne, received permission in 1864 to continue using their square blue flags with the white disc. Despite the various designs and patterns of different battle flags across the Confederate military, clearly the most popular and widespread was the St. Andrew's Cross. In 1863, the Confederate Navy officially adopted the St. Andrew's Cross as the Navy Jack. So the Navy Jack is a, na is a Navy term for the flag that's in the front of the boat. Okay, so the flag that is right on the front that everyone can see is called the Navy Jack. And the Confederate Navy officially adopted the St. Andrews flag in 1863. Also in 1863, the Congress referred to the St. Andrews cross as simply the battle flag. So even though there are a bunch of different designs floating around within the Confederate Army, the Confederate military in general, the official Confederate Congress started to refer to the popular St. Andrew's Cross simply as the battle flag. So it was kind of like a standard version, okay? And it, it incorporated it into the stainless banner, which was the new national Confederate flag. We're going to talk about the stainless banner in a minute. All right, so what did we just talk about? We talked about how... The Army of Virginia were the originals. The Army of Virginia were the first Confederate units to use what we see today. Like when we look on the news, when we're talking and we're debating with our family, when we see these newscasts, like the one I played in the beginning of the episode, when we see those, that is the flag that the Army of Virginia used, right? The big red flag with the blue cross with the white stars. The Army of Virginia was the first confederate unit to adopt that battle flag and eventually through you know 
through force, really, <laughs> it was spread throughout the army. So it just, in the beginning, it started with the Army of Northern Virginia, and then the old commanders of the Army of Northern Virginia, they transferred. They transferred to the Army of the West and other units. So within those units, they were like, yo, everyone, all y'all, listen up. Y'all need to change your flag to the St. Andrew's flag, the one we used up in the Army of Virginia, all right? So, you know, as a good soldier, your commanding general tells you you need to change the flag. You might do it grudgingly, and maybe you have a guy, you know, hey, hey, Sergeant, come here. Hey, keep our flag tucked in the back just in case, right? So you formally adopt the old flag, but your heart is still with the old flag, the old regimental unique flags that every individual regiment had, okay? The stainless banner. As opposition to the stars and bars grew within the Congress, the Congress took over the issue of another national flag once again in April of 1863. So the stars and bars, which I talked about earlier, was still the official national flag. The St. Andrew's Cross was the battle flag. Okay, there's a difference between a national flag and a battle flag. So, you know, everyone kind of kind of pooped on the stars and bars and it was like, yo, the Congress was like, all right, we're sick of talking about it. Let's make a new one since everyone's whining and complaining. We need to make a new one, right? So they started talking about a new flag in 1863. So due to the popularity of the St. Andrew's Cross flag and the success of the Army of Northern Virginia, the Congress decided to incorporate the St. Andrew's cross into the new national flag. William Miles, this is when he saw his opportunity to vindicate himself, right? He had been he had been made fun of, he had been laughed out of the committee meetings because he he wanted his St. Andrew design and everyone rejected it, so now he had his revenge. <laughs> he championed the incorporation of his St. Andrew's cross onto a a field of pure white as the new Confederate flag. President Jefferson Davis finally signed the bill into law making a new national flag on May 1st, 1863. The flag was well received by most people. So this flag was a stainless banner. According to the editors of the Savannah Daily Morning News, the flag's whiteness carried a very important symbolic meaning listen to this quote as a people we are fighting to maintain the heaven ordained supremacy of the white man or the inferior or colored race a white flag would thus be emblematic of our cause bluetooth disconnected the bluetooth editors connected the editors subsequently dubbed the second national flag as the quote white man's flag this was a rare wartime linkage of the flag to white supremacy. So, there are some folks floating around the Confederacy, actually there are a lot of folks, that felt like the flag on the white field, so the St. Andrew's Cross on the white field was perfect, just perfect. And not because it looked cool, not because they necessarily loved the color white, which, you know, you could argue they did. But to them, it represented the white power that the Confederacy 
represented, right? The power of the white man, the mission of the Confederacy to make sure that they cemented in law as the law of their land that whites are the superior race. And the whole institution that they fought over and they fought to maintain was based on this just fundamental viewpoint. Anyone who tells you otherwise is not being honest. And, we, and we're going to talk about it a little bit later in the episode because we're really going to start to unpack some of this baggage and we're going to start debating, you know, okay, we're talking about stage rights. We're talking about the institution of slavery. Which one was it? We're going to talk about that. But there's no doubt that there are many people within the Confederacy who felt like the stainless banner was perfect because of the white background. The pure white plus the St. Andrew's flag. What a great combination. It was perfect for them. In medieval imagery, white is, a, is symbolic of purity. Certainly, someone could use it as a racial metaphor, but this did not factor itself into the official discussion of the new design. So no official Confederate politician ever talked about linking the flag to white supremacy, but there are newspaper editors, there are different um, local people who were like, hey, 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 y'all. Like nudge, like elbow nudge in the ribs. Yeah, this is perfect. This means the white man is going to be on top, right? But it wasn't officially discussed in political circles until after the war. Occasionally, the stainless banner was issued to units as a battle flag, but more, than, more often than not, it was displayed on the headquarters of the commanding officers. Of course, over time, Opposition to even this flag began to take shape. Many people believed it was just too white. <laughs> it was just too white, man. It got dirty too easily. And it made it look like it was a symbol of surrender or a symbol of truce. However, this didn't matter. Because by the time new designs for a third flag with a vertical red stripe at the end was submitted and approved by the Confederate Congress, General Lee had already surrendered his army to General Grant on May 10th of 1865 so at this point the adoption of the third flag was 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 pointless i mean they they officially adopted it but the war was already over so you might see a few different flags if you ever see like a rally supporting the confederate flag you'll probably see three different flags you'll see the saint andrew's cross the red with the blue cross with the white stars you'll see a white flag with the St. Andrew's cross in the upper left-hand corner. And then you'll see a white flag with a red stripe at the end with the St. Andrew's flag in the upper left corner. Make sense? Too easy. Fast forward hundreds of years later, <laughs> right? So we're at 1865. Let's fast forward a little bit. Fast forward 100 years later and, well, hundreds of years later, and modern Americans, they choose the St. Andrew's cross flag. And this is makes the confusion worse because they're, they refer to the St. Andrew's cross flag as the stars and bars. Listen, if anyone, if any of your, your cousins from South Carolina come up to you and say, hey, y'all, y'all want to wear a stars and bars t-shirt? Say, excuse me, cousin Earl, it is not the stars and bars. It is the St. Andrew's 
cross flag. Get it right. Chase told me. Who the hell is Chase? <laughs> you know, so make sure you all get it right, all right? The St. Andrew's Cross is not the Stars and Bars. This is pretty ironic because the whole point of, this, of the Confederacy designing the St. Andrew's flag in the first place was to make it the opposite of the Stars and Bars, right? <laughs> That's the reason why they made the St. Andrew's flag was because of the, they wanted to get away and distance themselves from the Stars and Bars because the Stars and Bars, it looked too much like the Stars and Stripes. I hope I'm not confusing anyone. I hope everyone's staying with me. Stay with me, y'all. So, the Confederate government decided to replace the Stars and Bars to provide a, a symbol that was a separate and independent nation. That was the whole point of replacing the Stars and Bars in the first place. The point was, look, this flag looks like the Stars and Stripes. We need to create a, quote, separate and independent nation. All right, all right. So... We're going to take a quick breather. I hope I didn't kind of rush through that stuff a little bit too fast for you guys. I hope you all enjoy it. We're going to play another cool song. Eight. Hey. This one is called Union Dixie. Oh, way down south in the land of traitors, rattlesnakes and alligators. Right away, right away, come away, come away, right away, right away, come away. Where cotton's king and men are chattels, union boys will win the battles. Right away, right away, come away, come away, right away, right away, come away. We'll all go down to Dixie, away, away. Each Dixie boy must understand that he must find his Uncle Sam away, away, away. All right, we are back, y'all. Y'all miss me yet? <laughs> okay, so I hope the first part before this musical interlude wasn't too confusing. All right, if it was, let me know, and we'll clarify a few things in the next episode. So basically, the whole point of the part of part one of this episode, right before the musical break, was to kind of uh, finish up the whole flag historical thing. All right, so remember... The timeline looks like this. The Confederacy, uh, Confederacy, their first flag was the Stars and Bars. And it was called this because there were some people that wanted to remain as close to the Union as they could. So they didn't want the Yanks, the Yankees, to take everything. They hated the fact that the Yankees thought they could claim their flag. So... The flag, they made it look just like the Stars and Stripes. This flag was later rejected because it just looked too much like the Stars and Stripes and people were getting confused. Then from there, the Army of Northern Virginia decides we're going to make our own battle flag because the Congress is taking too long. They decide to adopt the St. Andrew's Cross flag. Then the Stainless Banner is created as the new national flag replacing the Stars and Bars. And then after that, they tried on third flag, but by then they'd already surrendered. All right. So that's the basic timeline of everything. All right. Let's talk about post-war symbolism. Now, this is where stuff starts getting good because <laughs> then we start getting to the nitty gritty, the really tough stuff to talk about. And, you know, I like talking about tough stuff. So 
Let's let, let's tackle it. Let's uh, flesh out some of these concepts here. All right, so stick with me. All right. In the decades following the war, former Confederates insisted that the battle flag was an apolitical symbol. It was separate from the Confederacy's national flag and thus not a threat to a unified America. So when I say the battle flag, once again, I'm saying the St. Andrews flag. So there was this movement after the war, after the Civil War, post-war, to hold on to the St. Andrews flag. They wanted to hold on to it. Look, we're not going to embrace the stars and bars. We're not going to embrace the stainless banner. Let us just hold on to the St. Andrews cross because there's no threat to anybody. This was a strictly military flag. It didn't represent the Confederacy as a whole. It just represented the Confederate soldier, right? The individual soldier who was brave and he sacrificed himself for the greater good of his state, et cetera, et cetera. Carlton McCarthy, who was a veteran of the Confederate artillery, in his 1882 memoir, he wrote that the St. Andrew's flag, quote, was not the flag of the Confederacy, but simply the banner of the Confederate soldier. As such, it should not share in the condemnation which our cause received or suffer from its downfall. Okay? The author of one of my great sources for this podcast, Mr. John Kosick, he makes an excellent observation on post-war hypocrisy within the South. Quote, at the same time that Confederate veterans and their descendants demanded respect for the brave Confederate soldier and for his flag, they also sought to vindicate the cause for which that soldier had fought. So how do you do both at the same time? Right? Think about that. How do you do both? But what was the Confederate cause, right? Like, that's what is at the crux of all these arguments. That is what is at the center of these heated debates. The clip I played in the beginning of my podcast today was from six years ago. And people were debating whether the Confederate flag should be flown in front of the state capitol. This was only six freaking years ago. Think about that. Six years ago, the Confederate flag, the battle flag, the St. Andrew's Cross was flying proudly on the state capital of South Carolina. That's how powerful this subject is. So what was the Confederate cause? This question directly correlates to the debates that are raging today over the St. Andrew's flag and Confederate monuments and the nostalgia behind them. This debate really centers around the importance of slavery in the birth, life, and the ultimate death of the Confederacy. So during the war, there was almost no discussion of the Confederate flag as a symbol of slavery or racism. No one talked about that. No one had time to talk about that. It was almost like unsaid, like, bro, like, of course we fight for slavery. We don't need to sit here and do official correspondence about it. It's an unsaid thing, right? We're not going to talk about it officially because we have other things to worry about. We have a war to win. So there is little evidence of this explicit meaning that some, there's so little evidence. Let me rephrase that. Let me say this again. Okay. During the war, there was almost no discussion of the Confederate flag as a symbol of slavery or racism. Just none. There, there were very, very few. Like you would have to dig for a long time to find two or three. So 
Since there is so little evidence of this explicit meaning, there are some historians that have gone so far as to proclaim that based on the evidence or lack thereof, that the battle flag of the Confederacy in its Civil War context was not, in fact, a racist symbol. This is because, according to these folks, the flag did not have an explicit racist reference. So they're being very literal in their in their analysis. Like, okay, guys, since it does not say we hate N-words and this flag represents our hatred for N-words, that means that the flag isn't racist. That's ridiculous. Quote, men did not create or carry it as a statement of racism or as a symbol of an unequivocally racist objective. This argument, however, does not make much sense to me at all. <laughs> I mean, I don't get it. Chiefly because the men who carried the St. Andrew's cross into battle supported and fought and died for a government who championed the preservation and the expansion of a racist institution, i.e. slavery, chattel slavery. Not nice, play fair, be polite slavery, brutal, violent vicious slavery that's whole objective was to prop an entire society on its back all right linking the flag to slavery and racism is easily done it's easy freaking a, a five a fifth grader who decides to write a history class in miss johnson's social studies class he they could figure out that slavery and racism was represented by the flag. All a person has to do is simply link the cause of the Confederacy to slavery. Let me say that again. Linking the flag to slavery and racism is easily done. Anyone can do it. All a person really has to do is simply link the cause of the Confederacy to slavery. The cause of the Confederacy. The real cause. Just a brief examination of Civil War history will reveal a plethora of primary sources and other evidence supporting the Confederacy's staunch beliefs in the moral and economic necessity of slavery. All right. So what does the Confederate battle flag really represent? We're going to talk about the lost cause fallacy. All right. So defenders of the flag from 1865 to 2022 have denied vehemently denied that the confederacy existed to defend or preserve slavery and if you go against them they will attack your intellect and they will attack your motives so let's flesh out some critical details before we dive into this topic because it is very important to stay balanced and as objective as possible and I'm going to be straight with y'all. I'm not going to cut any corners. I'm not going to be politically correct. I'm a Yankee. But I'm going to bash the heck out of the North right now. The North was not without guilt. In fact, the North was part of the damn problem. The North lived in a freaking glass house when it came to criticizing the Southern states about their treatment of African Americans. Okay? A freaking glass house. Although slavery was by 1860 confined to the southern and the border states racism had no boundaries racism and segregation were widespread and as vicious as ever 
in most northern states. These same states that shed blood to prevent the South from succession, uh, succession denied the basic human rights to their own black populations. And some of these states, like Illinois, went so far as to ban blacks completely from settling in their state. Illinois did not even want black people to live in the state. So these same hypocrites who were in Congress yelling at the Southerners, talking about, oh, you guys are traitors, you guys are treat people like crap, wouldn't even would spit on a black person if you even said their name, if they even tried to approach them. They don't even want them living near them. Among Southern whites, slave ownership was, was very limited. Some say it was as low as 5%. All right, so that's not a lot. Confederate sympathizers will point to the fact that the common Southern soldier did not own slaves or fight for slavery. And since the flag represents the soldiers, then by default, the flag doesn't represent the support of slavery. So let, let's go over that logical kind of chain, right? That logical reasoning, as they say in the LSAT. Confederate sympathizers will point to the fact that the common Southern soldier did not own slaves or fight for slavery. And since the battle flag of the Confederacy represents the soldiers and not the Confederate nation, the soldiers then by right then by default, the flag doesn't represent or support slavery. This is one thing I will agree on. I do agree that most Confederate soldiers didn't necessarily care about slavery. I'll, I'll give you that. Most believed that they were fighting to defend their homes against Yankee invaders and to preserve individual and constitutional liberty that America won and fought for in 1776. Most white Southerners believed, of course falsely, right, that secession was a constitutional right and that Lincoln's use of federal power to preserve the Union slash crush the rebels was a massive federal overstep and thus, by definition, unconstitutional. Let me read that again. Most white Southerners believed that secession was a constitutional right and that Lincoln's use of federal power to preserve the Union slash crush the rebels was a massive federal overstep and thus, by definition, unconstitutional. The Confederacy cast themselves as brave defenders of the Southern homestead. The army was simply defending their states against military invasion by federal forces, right? Forces that would not hesitate to inflict incalculable damage to people and to property. So, hey, look, these Yankees are going to come down here. They're going to beat up your little brother. They're going to kidnap your sister. They're going to kill your daddy. And beat the crap out of your grandpa. You got to do something. We can't let these Yankees come down here and change our way of life. That's what the common southern soldier was fed. Right? That's the line. That's the propaganda that they were fed. Hence, the soldier's battle flag, i.e. the St. Andrew's flag, symbolized a valiant defense of home and a resistance to tyrannical invaders. And this perception has literally lasted until today like 
yesterday. Modern Confederate supporters will deny that slavery was the cause of the war, and they claim that its reason for being was the defense of constitutional liberty against the evil of big government, right? So the Confederacy was the little guy. The big meanie, the Union, the Yankees, they were the big bully, and they were beating up on the smaller, weaker, gentle, polite South. We were only trying to live our lives down here in Tennessee. We were only trying to have our slaves, to pick our cotton, right? To deny our black people rights down here in South Carolina. We didn't ask you Yankees to come down here and tell us what to do, and we're not trying to tell you guys what to do. You just leave us alone. That was That's pretty much the general theory behind many Southern sympathizers, right? That's the theory behind their belief that Really, the fight was not over slavery. So, according to this line of reasoning, it can be inferred that the growth of the big, bloated, intrusive federal system in modern times is directly linked to the defeat of the Confederacy. Basically, the reason why the government is so big and corrupt and bloated right now is because they beat the crap out of the Confederacy, and it wasn't fair, and the little guy never had a chance. Mr. Kosick also describes this philosophy as anti-government ideology. Quote, combined with historical analysis and ancestor veneration to give the Confederacy and its symbols exalted status as icons of freedom. That's the key. In order to venerate something, in order to worship something, you have to truly believe in its myth. You have to create a legend behind it. The reason why there are 18-year-old kids in Arkansas, and I'm going to play this story a little bit later, that are wearing the Confederate flag as hoodies and sweatshirts and staging protests over wearing or over being able to wear the Confederate flag in their high school, in order for 18-year-olds to know anything and believe anything about that flag, there has to be a myth behind it. In order for people in 2022 to stand outside a Capitol building with Confederate flag and say, don't take down the monument, don't take down the Confederate flag. There has to be some type of deeply ingrained veneration, some deeply ingrained worship of this old symbol. There has to be something there because else people wouldn't waste their time out of their day to stand around and talk about some dusty old flag. Their granddaddies, their fathers, their great granddaddies, they patched that down. They passed it down through the lineage that that mythical worship of the Confederate cause. So let's talk about some of the positions that the Confederate leaders took, all right? And this is going to support the Southern sympathizers' claims. But in the next episode, we're going to tear those claims down. The position of Confederate leadership. The generations since 1865 have embellished motivations for the Southern states to secede. They tend to overstate the focus on states' rights and understate the centrality of slavery as motivations for war. This emphasis on states' rights, the argument, this argument is started at the top with Confederate President Jefferson Davis. 
Davis needed something other than just slavery to justify the South's secession. So, in 1861, he proclaimed that what was truly at stake was a dangerous consolidation of federal power at the expense of the states. Quote, consolidation would be the destruction of the Union and far more fatal to popular liberty than the separation of the states. Even Davis's most hated and bitter rivals and critics echoed this belief. Robert Barnwell Rhett, who's a South Carolina newspaper editor and a politician, declared that, quote, the southern states now stand exactly in the same position towards the northern states that the colonies did toward Great Britain. The government of the United States is no longer the government of the Confederated Republics, but of a consolidated democracy. It is no longer a free government, but a despotism. Rhett's words give ample excuses for modern-day supporters to blame the bloated and intrusive federal government for America's political, social, and cultural evils. So what they're doing is they're saying, look, guess what? The reason why we broke away is because we saw the writing on the freaking wall. This government was getting too big. This government didn't give a crap about the little guy's rights. So what did we do? We broke away before it can get too bad. And we broke away to form our own union that is based on liberty, that is based on individual's choice, and is based on state rights. Because we knew, we saw it coming. The Yankees, they got they were getting too big, too rich, and too greedy. And what they were going to do is they are going to stomp on the little guy's rights, and we weren't going to allow that. We're not going to allow bullies. We're going to stand up the bullies. Excuse me. But to be fair, Rhett's words have had a long-standing tradition within American political thought and theory. The founding fathers were highly suspicious of a strong central government. Thus, distrust of big government is actually an undeniable truth in American history and acts and acted as a strong intellectual argument for the Confederacy's just or lost cause fallacy, right? Just cause, lost cause, state rights, whatever you want to call it. This kind of distrust of big government, of central government, really played into the hands of Confederate sympathizers. Equally undeniable, however, is the fact that the South's distrust of a powerful central government was directly related to the very real fear, the very real fear of what it would mean for the future of slavery all right, as a central institution of Southern culture, economics, and social traditions if the Confederacy was to lose. They knew it would be terrible for everybody, and they were scared the freaking death of it. about to play a quick news story. I just put Confederate flag on their hands, on their face, wherever they wanted it. During lunch, they had the police, the principal, the vice principal, Mr. Smith, all the deans. They were all telling us we either had to wash it off her face or go home. Hashtag history, not hate. A movement these Fayetteville High School students are standing up for. I told them I wasn't going to take it off. So now I went to the office, we had a discussion. And then the head principal ended up calling me racist. Principal of FHS, Dr. Jay Dostal, says their actions were against the school's policy 
to keep a safe and undisrupted environment. We're not trying to trample on uh, their First Amendment rights. We're just trying to have a safe and orderly school environment. According to the district's rules, attire that disrupts the educational process or otherwise interferes with the rights or opportunities of others to learn or teach is considered improper and unacceptable. We have validated that the Confederate flag in our building can uh, cause a substantially disruptive environment for some Fayetteville, of our students. Arkansas and public because school of that, system. we're going to take measures to make sure that all of our kids remain safe. But the students say their actions were showing the history of the flag. The American flag was raised for slavery too, but I mean, all the flags were trying to say is we don't want to be in your nation, we want to be ourselves, we don't want to be part of this. To me, you know, it's all southern pride, it's, you know, all heritage. Despite being reprimanded by the school, the students say they'll continue to protest. They're both going to keep wearing their jackets, and if I have makeup, I'm going to put, I'm going to put, like, hashtag history not hate on both my hands, I'll put, I'll still keep putting the flag on my face. You know, none of us are racist, none of us are doing it for hate, it's southern pride and we're not going to take it off on anyone. It's all flag, this is Arkansas, this is the South. In Fayetteville, Katie DeVille. This is Arkansas, this is the South. I'm going to end it with that. Alright guys, once again, please turn on your post notifications so you know when new episodes come out. Thank you so much for listening to me blab on and on and on. My voice is actually getting really tired. I find it really hard to talk for an hour straight with me bumbling and fumbling through. Thank you to all our listeners, both domestically and internationally. We love y'all so freaking much. Thank you for the support. Thank you so much. It means so much to us. We are going to end everything with another song from Earl, Tennessee. See you next time. We'll be back. We'll be back with another great episode. I think we're going to do it on Saturday, all right? So stay tuned. God bless you all. Stay safe. Put God and your family first. Always be positive. Remain positive. Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something. Remember, the sun will shine another day. Get up and get after it. Ape. The song is called The Rebel Soldier. Ape out.